it cause chaos. Great, yeah. I'm glad we got that the first time. <laughs> uh, I got new earphones and they're like a lot better than my old ones. I'm in like surround sound now. Oh god. <laughs> well, I've had the same headphones for like years. Yeah, I think mine got broken in the move because they started making a weird rattling noise last week. Honestly, that's rude of them. I know, right? Mm-hmm. I have chosen a interesting person. Should I be scared? I feel scared. I'm always scared. <laughs> you you should always be scared. But it is actually one of the earliest feminist philosophers. Oh. Yes. How old are we talking? Because I thought I was the ancient history nerd here. It's the 1700s. Okay. So not not that ancient. Also, I just looked down at the corner of my computer where it tells me what the temperature is right now, and it's apparently 104 degrees where I am. That sounds terrible. Yeah, I was wondering why I refused to put on a shirt today. Makes a little bit more sense now. My place is only 80. It hasn't been this hot ever. This feels wrong, honestly, because like, I'm also here, and it's like kind of gross out, but it's not that hot. So one of those climate change things? Must be. That's just what I blame for everything now. <laughs> I mean, there's like fires up and down the West Coast and a hurricane in New Orleans and yeah, and Canada's sending. on fire. Canada's on fire. I really am not up to date on like what's on fire. I think Canada was on fire because we had some really nice sunsets. Hmm. If you can just ignore the suffering from miles <laughs> away. You know, we always have nice sunsets in San Diego. <laughs> like a thing here people are really into the sunset regardless of suffering yeah that sounds nice i was today i hung out with some of my friends like from la who i grew up with and one of them lived in indiana for the last few years and she was saying that there was a fire nearby at one point and the sky was kind of like that hazy orange that it gets when there's fires and so she looked at all her friends and was like oh the air quality is bad there must be a fire nearby and all her friends kind of looked at her and were like how would you know that? Like, we haven't heard anything about a fire. Then, like, later that day on the news, there was a huge fire nearby, and they all just kind of looked at her and was like, what is this rich witchcraft? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, everyone where we grew up knew what a fire looked like in the sky. Yeah, that's just basic survival. Do you know what a fire looks like in the sky, Ellen? I know it looks like a nice sunset. You know what? I don't need it for basic survival because where I'm from, there's not fires. There was that big fire one time while I was living in Georgia and I was the only one who, who understood what the sky was telling us. There, you see? And I felt real accomplished because like, I still don't know dude a tornado, but I can tell you what a fire looks like. <laughs> Tornadoes are easy, you just go underground. The one like giant tornado warning we had my sophomore year at tech i got like sent to the basement lecture hall while i was in the library but someone was doing like a history lecture in there and she refused to give up the last 15 minutes of her lecture so like while people were being evacuated into her lecture hall she just continued talking about like u.s history i was like that is some dedication <laughs> i i got like the last 15 minutes of a franklin roosevelt lecture <laughs> nice thanks all right but this week, we're learning about Mary Wollstonecraft. I know that name. Why do I know that name? She is the mother of Mary Shelley. That's why I know that name. Yeah. Mary Shelley should be our Halloween episode. 
Oh, that's a good idea. Or as opposed to two weeks from now when I can't think of something. Nah, save it. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> All right. Wollstonecraft was born on the 27th of April in 1759 in Spitalfield, London. Just whatever. Why are cities in London always hilariously named? Don't know. Like, who dumb. named London? Like, at least London itself, nice name, solid yeah. name. Anything within or around it, horrible. <laughs> Honestly, most of the UK, it's just like, there's too many vowels for some reason, and I don't know what's going on. But you know what? We don't have any UK listeners to judge us, so we can insult the UK all we want. We have no listeners out. Yeah. <laughs> we got our first bad review this week. I really upset. We got a bad review? <laughs> yeah. Who cares enough? I don't know. Let's keep yeah. going. <laughs> Anyway, she was the second of seven children to Elizabeth Dixon and Edward John Wollstonecraft. So, her father made a decent chunk of money, but he kept spending it on frivolous projects. So, they had no money. That's and, rude. Yeah, that was rude. This was all documented in a book by Claire Tomalin called The Life and Death of Mary Wollstonecraft. And... Then it gets worse, where her father asks her for her inheritance when he ran out of money. And then Mary would like have to sleep outside her mother's door because her father was, you know, a ruffian and she was worried that he would beat her, her mother. So not, none of this is good. So she had like a real stellar childhood. Oh, yeah. Like like the rest of them. Mm hmm. She also was, like, essentially raising her two younger sisters. But, luckily, she had friendship. Friendship? Yeah. She became friends with Jane Arden, whose father was a philosopher, so he was, like, getting that nice intellectual influence. And she really liked Arden, apparently to the point of being, like, emotionally possessive. At one point, Wollstonecraft said, quote, I have formed romantic notions of friendship. I am a singular in my thoughts of love and friendship. I must have the first place or none. Was the so, real prize the friend she made along the way? Oh, God. I guess it was. <laughs> <sighs> Let's see. Oh, also in her letter, she talked about her depression. That's going to come up later. And she made another friend named Fanny, which is short for Francis, Blood. Fanny Blood. Fanny Blood. I just I just need us to stop there for a sec. Gotta marinate in the Fanny Blood. <laughs> the way you said that. Ellen. Moving on. Do we have to? Yes. Don't you want to marinate in it? We've marinated long enough. Alright. 1778. Mary's 19. She left home and she got a job as a, quote, lady's companion, which as far as I can tell, was a friend. Lesbian lover? No, it was just a friend that a rich lady would hire to live with. It'd be uh, more fun if it was her lesbian lover. It would, but she was with this uh, lady named Sarah Dawson, who was a wealthy widow, and they did not like each other. Why hire a friend who you don't like? 
I think she hoped that they would like each other, and then they proceeded to not. <laughs> Apparently Sarah got angry a lot, and Mary just didn't like that, for obvious reasons. You know, if you're gonna hire a friend, I feel you gotta go through like a more significant interview process. I know. Also, why can't I get a job as a lady companion? You be my lady companion. <laughs> you don't make enough money for me to be a lady companion. You can be my companion who also goes off and has their own job. That's just a friend. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. And just call it a lady companion. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Alright, so 1780. She realized this wasn't working out. So she returned home to take care of her dying mother. When that ended, because her mom died, she moved in with the Bloods. So Fanny from then on, she's, she learns that like Fanny wasn't as cool as she thought she was. Like, she's, she's busting in there and she's like, man, I am so ready to single-handedly take down the patriarchy. And then Fanny's like, yeah, but like, aren't men kind of hot? <laughs> that's a mood <laughs> yeah so that's a very brief paraphrase of how, the, how those intellectual discussions went yeah in my head that's exactly how those intellectual discussions went now exactly and you're not gonna change my mind <laughs> so mary's like she wants to live in a female utopia with with fanny but this doesn't work out because apparently you need money to do that that is the, like, bane of the world. I know. Capitalism, Capitalism. and patriarchy. Just tisk. <laughs> but they decide to, they have a backup plan where they're going to set up a school. So Mary convinces her little sister Eliza, who had postpartum depression at the time, to just, like, leave her family and come with them. And then... Wait, postpartum depression implies the presence of a child. Yeah, well, Eliza had a child, and- Did she take it with them? No. The child stayed there. Oops. This was before they understood what postpartum depression was, so there wasn't much treatment. So it was probably better. Okay. I also think the child died later. None of- You know, <laughs> old-timey stuff. A lot of child death in the past. That is true. But anyway, she, Fanny, uh, the sister Eliza, and her other sister, Everina, set up a school. And then Fanny, oh, Fanny, Fanny made a dumb mistake. Did well, she, she find a man? She got married, yeah. And then she moved to Portugal, away from her friends. Okay, but like moving to Portugal is pretty cool. Yeah, but then she got pregnant. And are you about to say she died in childbirth? Well, yes, she got yes, sick are. after being pregnant, and then so in 1785, Mary like goes to Portugal to take care of you know her dying friend, hoping, hoping she'll get better, but she doesn't and she dies. And because Mary left, the school failed because you know she was the one keeping that afloat. So, kind of a lose-lose situation here. Nothing good about that. Lots of children died and lots of women died in childbirth back mm -hmm. in the day. 
So she decided to go with one of the other few career options that she had, which was to become a governess. So she moved to Ireland, but she also didn't get along with this lady of the house. So like she's the kind of girl that girls don't usually like. <laughs> you know, I bet she was just want, like busting in there being like, have you ever noticed how the world is unjust? And they're like, okay, Mary, but like, we've got things to do. Have you ever wanted to be equal to a man? <laughs> yes, maybe? No? Yeah. You want me to leave? Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's exactly how that went. Mm -hmm. So after a year of this not going well, she decides to go with the one other career opportunity available to women at the time, which was to become an author. Wow. Do, do, do. This was a radical decision, and she wanted to become, quote, first of a new genus. So she moves back to London, and she begins working with this guy named Joseph Johnson. And he was a pretty liberal publisher, and he got her a job as a translator and a reviewer. And it's around this time that she wrote thoughts on the education of daughters, in which she advocates for the education of women. This comes up a lot. And her intellectual universe expanded during this time, not only from like reading all these things for her reviews, but also because she was attending Johnson's famous dinner parties, where she met the radical pamphleteer Thomas Paine, also known as the dude who wrote the Summer Soldier essay. Yeah, and by extension, inspired the Winter Soldier. <laughs> That's how you get me to perk up. <laughs> yes. And also, she met the philosopher William Godwin, who is her future husband. Oh. Yes. Now, so she doesn't swear off all men. No. Lame. Now, they didn't get along at first. Is this an enemies to lovers story? A little bit. So apparently... He wanted to, like, talk to Payne, but Mary kept, like, taking him aside and arguing with him about his philosophy. So that, that was a less than stellar first impression. And they were, like, both disappointed with each other by the end of that. But besides not getting along with Godwin, she did become really good friends with Johnson. And... She described him in her letters as, like, a father and a brother. Like, just a good guy. Oh. Unlike her actual father and brothers. Exactly. <laughs> the bar is real low. Cool. <laughs> now, this was around the time of the French Revolution. Remember that? Yes. The French With the Revolution. guillotines. Yeah, exactly. The French Revolution is too complicated for me to sum up. But we're gonna hit some points of it. So, <laughs> so first off, I want to quote Lim is like real bad right now. Oh God, God, what's with you and quoting pop culture? It's like all I've got going for me. I know a lot of pop culture fam. Also, <laughs> is Lim is even pop culture anymore? I feel like I'm like ten years removed from that. It's a good point. All right, what's your quote? Oh. I'm not actually going to sing to you. <laughs> wow. Have some shame. Ugh. You made me do scatting for the Ella Fitzgerald episode. And you come here. Oh. I don't even sing like Miss to you. 
Exactly. <laughs> so, this is around the point where she wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Men. Now, this was in response to the Whig Edwin Burke, who wrote a politically conservative critique of the French Revolution called Reflections on the Revolution in France. Okay, so that was published on November 1st, 1790. And Mary was so angered by this that she spent the rest of the month <laughs> writing her rebuttal. And it was published on November 29th, 1790. <laughs> it's even like the postscript of the title is even in a letter to the right honorable Edmund Burke. I love when people write like open letters in newspapers. It's just so petty. It is so petty. Like that is peak petty. <laughs> It was first published anonymously, but the next edition, which was in like December, like a few weeks later, it was with officially Mary as the author. Yeah, you gotta claim your pettiness, fam. You can't just oh, like course. put petty into the world and not take it. <laughs> this guy deserves the direct shade. Now, this was her first overly political and feminist work. And so the like thing about educating your daughters wasn't considered political not really feminist it was honestly more of like an educational pamphlet thing where she was like you should educate children in general and then she was like and also girl children i feel but, like that would still be considered political and feminist you know this was i think this was considered her first political mainly because it was what got her like on the map and made her famous Okay, I'll take that. Yeah. Now, she was pretty pro the French Revolution. Okay, she called the French Revolution, quote, a glorious chance to, ob to obtain more virtue and happiness than hitero blessed our globe. So clearly she wasn't there watching, like, children watch people get beheaded in the town square. Oh, not yet. <laughs> oh, she goes and watches? Yep. Okay, that makes me feel a little better because I'm like, you can't be saying the French Revolution is like a good thing until you like walk to their town square. Like, I, I don't disagree. They needed a revolution, but like the Reign of Terror has that name for a reason. To be fair, the Reign of Terror hadn't happened yet. Okay. One example of her rebuttal to Burke was about the events of October 5th and 6th, 1789 when the royal family was marched from Versailles to Paris by a group of angry housewives. So Burke was like praising Queen Antoinette. He was saying how she was refined elegance of the ancient regime, and who she was surrounded by, quote, fairies from hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women. Meanwhile, Mary is just like, quote, Probably you mean women who gained a livelihood by selling vegetables or fish, who never had the advantages of education. So just pure shade, where she's like, hey, maybe they're just people who want to feed their families. Yeah, Marie Antoinette, like, she's a very odd character. I'm a big fan, honestly, in like a mildly ironic way. Marie Antoinette needs her own episode. She'll get it, and it's you better not take it because that's that's me. Okay, <laughs> you both know that. Yes, but she wrote this; it made her famous. And then, 
a little bit later in January 1792, she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And this was her most famous work. It's one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. It argues for the education of women that matches their level in society, which considering they wanted to give women no education was pretty good. And she also argued that educated women can better raise children and can actually like have conversations with husbands. So it really boiled down to women are people and not just ornaments for men. I feel like that's the like same kind of argument of like men want like interesting women they have conversations with and they don't know, want like to educate women so they can be interesting enough to have conversations with. But then that's like the same argument as like guys who like want girls who are good in bed but like haven't ever had sex. Her, her audience is men. I know, but like you, you see what I'm saying? It's like the same argument we're still getting today, but like just different like terms. Well, obviously, they weren't going to go with, maybe we should educate women so they can have better lives. <clears throat> she got to make, make it appealing for, you know, anyone who's not women, I guess. Huh. <sighs> Patriarchy. Doesn't it feel nice to not be a person? <laughs> so the work also encourages rational education as opposed to so apparently in the 1700s, they had this like emotional sensibility where they believed that if you have stronger nerves, like more sensitive nerves, you would have stronger emotions. And it was believed that generally women have more sensitive nerves, so they had stronger emotions. So that they were, it was, so long story short, they didn't think women could have rational thought because that's the kind of, that's the place we're at right now. So Wollstonecraft is arguing that this is all nurture and not nature because if men are refusing to educate them and encouraging them to be frivolous, they're not going to, you know, be having intense rational discussions. And like men are so rational. You know who started like every <laughs> war we've ever been in? <laughs> yeah, haven't all wars been started by men? Hmm... Aren't men the ones who, like, start calling you names when you say you don't want to give me your number at a bar? <laughs> but yeah, she's like, hey, women could maybe have other jobs. Uh, quote, many women might certainly study the art of healing and be physicians as well as nurses and midwifery. Decency seems to a lot to them. They might also study politics, business of various kinds they might likewise pursue. That's some revolutionary stuff right there. Oh, yeah. Now, she was prompted to write this whole thing after reading... Okay, this is a French name. Charles <laughs> Maurice de Tailleran Perigord. Oh. <laughs> this man wrote a report in 1791 to the French National Assembly which stated that women should only receive a domestic education. So she took that and ran with it and expanded to a broader critique of double standards in general. Now, one thing was that this work was actually pretty well received. It's a misconception that it wasn't because of the book written by her husband after her death that kind of ruined her reputation. We'll get to that. 
<laughs> this is gonna be a good enemies to lovers. No, no, no. He thought he was doing a good thing. I thought we had a theme of like standable husbands going here. He didn't know. Uh, but now I can't stand him. No, he didn't fail her. Society failed her. I'll, I'll reserve judgment. Just, let's get there first. Okay. Oh, but later, this French statesman Charles visited London in 1792, and he visited her, and she got to say to his face that French girls should be given the same right to education. I'm sure he loved that. Oh, he must have. <laughs> but meanwhile, in her dating life, so she was, air quotes, dating the artist Henry Fusilli, who was already married. Oh no. So this was a bit of a problem, but she seemed to be kind of cool with that, to the point where she proposed a platonic living arrangement with him and his wife. That didn't go over well. Like a thruple or? I don't know. I think it would just be he and his wife would be married and Mary would be there. Why would anyone want that? I don't know. Like thruples make a lot of sense to me, but like that arrangement sounds weird. Well, it was also weird to Facili's wife, who was hey. appalled. And then Henry broke off the relationship with her. So after all this, Mary's like, yeah, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to France. Because <laughs> she was like so embarrassed by this. And also because she had, you know, supported the French Revolution. She was like, I might as well go there. Even though literally everyone was like, Please don't go to France. <laughs> France and Britain are about to go to war. There's still a violent revolution happening. And yet she went anyway. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. She saw former King Louis taken to be tried to the National Assembly. And, you know, right before he was put to death. You know, she's in the thick of things. Oh, in February 1793, France did declare war on Britain. And at that point, Mary's like, hey, maybe I should leave. So she tried to go to Switzerland, but this didn't work. Yeah, and then foreigners were put under police surveillance. And then just straight up forbidden to leave. So this was a poor decision on her part. Yeah. But... She did meet a guy, so that's fun. Ugh, who needs men? I know, but she met and fell in love with Gilbert Imlay, who was an American adventurer, whatever that means, and businessman. Adventurer probably means he like went to Africa and killed things that he shouldn't yeah, have. Yeah, he's one of those white guys. Yeah. But they started sleeping together despite being unmarried, which, you know, scandalous. And meanwhile... Mary's just like living through the revolution and she's quickly becoming disillusioned with the French Jacobin government. Now the Jacobins were the more radical group and she called their regime brutal and she disagreed with their treatment of women. 
in which they just refused to give women equal rights and they wanted women to be like helpers to men. Some French philosopher said that was how it should be. And they're like, yeah, that'll work. Rude. Meanwhile, she had been friend with some of the more moderate Girondins. I don't know French politics. So she got to watch some of her friends be killed by the more radical Jacobins once they got into power. Now are we hidden like guillotines? Oh yeah, that's how they're killed. Cool, cool. Just checking. Yeah. That's most of my knowledge about the French Revolution revolves around guillotines. Yeah, they killed Louis like that. They killed her friends. So Imle is like, hey, I can make money with this. So he starts using his American ships to like run the blockade so he can sell some scarce goods at high prices to the French, which meant the Jacobins were like cool with him. They're like, they all right. like hypocrites. They, yeah, they were. Cool. The French Revolution is a mess. I know. And I didn't have time to figure out, to analyze it and see who was in the right and who was wrong. They all just seemed wrong. Yeah, a lot of revolutions end up like that, where there's like not really a good guys in the end. Man. Like there was, there's always a good guy in the beginning, but like Mm. not usually the end. But meanwhile, the Jacobins did not arrest her boyfriend. So Emily went to the American embassy and lied. And he said, ah, yes, I married Mary. So she is now an American citizen. Now, I just actually marry her. Apparently, he was like staunchly against marriage, and he also kind of sucked. So cool. there's that. So he's willing to lie to the government to say he's married, which probably would lead to like some official documentation of a marriage, but like right. not actually. There were consequences to this later. Cool. But I guess he liked her enough to keep her from being arrested. <laughs> but meanwhile, Thomas Paine was arrested, and even her sisters like thought she was in prison for most of this. <laughs> oh my god, being her sister would probably be a pain. I know. So she was absolutely not a fan of life under the Jacobin government. She even wrote a letter to her sister in 1794 where she's like, quote, It is impossible for you to have any idea of the impression of the sad scenes I have been a witness to. Maybe you should have listened to literally everyone and not gone to Paris. (laughs) Yes, maybe she should have. But on May 14th, 1794, she gave birth to Fanny Imlay, who she named after her friend. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. But then a month later, the Jacobin government fell and freedom of the press was restored. So Barry's like, oh, great. I can go back to like writing things and doing things and not living in fear for my life. Meanwhile, Imlay, the boyfriend slash baby daddy, was like, oh, my God, you've gotten so boring ever since you had my child. Oh, my God. Yeah. He leaves. He left her. She was a foreign woman alone with an infant in the middle of a revolution who had just seen her good friends be imprisoned slash guillotined. 
So he like turned enough to like pretend to be married to her, make sure she didn't get arrested and knock her up, but like not enough to make sure her and her his baby didn't get killed in the revolution. Well, see, that would have required actual effort on his part, and that was too much to ask for. So she actually wrote to him many times, asking him to return, partly because she was low-key worried that if she returned to England, she'd be arrested for being a revolutionary sympathizer, and also because Paris wasn't doing well that winter, because it was so cold that the Seine froze, meaning they couldn't ship in any food. Oh, no. I guess that left her with plenty of time to write, because she wrote a history of the early revolution called... With an infant? I guess. Impressive. Yeah, called A Historical and Moral View of the French Revolution. So, in it, she condemns the Jacobins, but, like, defends the revolution as a whole. And she also has a lot to say about the monarchy and how she's against it. (laughs) She argued that the... aristocracy corrupted women because the women's main purpose in the in this society was to bear sons to continue a dynasty so like they're literally objectifying women to only the womb and she's also arguing that by aristocratic values uh, a woman's body and her ability to be charming is considered more important than her mind and character which encourages women like Marie Antoinette to be, you know, manipulative and ruthless. But eventually, she did return to England in April 1795, and she tried to get back together with Imlay, and he rejected her because, again, he's the worst. And she's still, like, tugging around his kid, right? Yeah, of course. Cool, cool. Now, between this and the depression that she's had, and of course, you know, there's no medic- there's no mental health support. Of course not. So, she tries to commit suicide with laudanum, which, unfortunate. But Imlay somehow saves her life. Very unclear how. So What a bitch. I know. So, once again, he likes her enough to keep her alive and not in prison, but not enough to, like, do anything with her. (sighs) I feel like she should sue him for child support. I don't think they had child support back then, but you're absolutely right. So she keeps- need a union. Yes. She keeps simping for Imlay, and she, like, goes on a business trip for him, somehow, to Scandinavia. Honey. I know. You can do better. She can. But while she was there, she wrote a book called Letters Written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, which was like a personal travel narrative, which was actually relatively popular. And when she gets back, she realizes that they're never ever getting back together. So then she decides to deal with it in the most healthy way, where she decides to commit suicide again. But this time, by jumping into the Tims. Mary really just needs, like, a bottle of wine, Olivia Rodrigo's album Sour, and, like, a good girlfriend. (laughs) That would have helped. (laughs) But luckily a stranger saw her and, like, rescued her. After this, she was recovering, and she ended up back in Joseph Johnson's circle, which included William Godwin. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so they started like their little romance 
and he had read her uh, letters written from Sweden book. And he was like, wow, you, you seem pretty depressed, but what a vision of your soul or something. And I feel like he's like the condescending kind of like intellectual feminist man where it's like he mansplains a lot. He seemed to like her, but 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 did he like her? Did he like the idea of her? Oh, that's a good point. But regardless, they fell in love and eventually Mary became pregnant again. Now this time. They got married because they wanted the child to be legitimate because they didn't want to do that again. <laughs> but this led to a whole debacle where it was revealed that she had never married Imlay in the first place. And also Godwin had like written a essay earlier where he was like, yeah, marriage should be abolished. And then proceed to get married. So now all his friends are criticizing him really this really wrecked their social life i mean usually getting married and having kids does wreck your social life that's yeah. just like average but but this was different from that. <laughs> august 30th 1797 she gave birth to mary godwin who was eventually mary shelley I like that she had two daughters and named one of them after like her best friend who died tragically and the other one after herself exactly but unfortunately the child the the birth didn't go well oh See, no she caught postpartum fever where she had an infection and then a few days later on september 10th she unfortunately died having kids used to be so dangerous i know it's still dangerous i mean it's still dangerous but like not anywhere near the level like it used to be like a 50 50 crapshoot whether or not you were gonna die in childbirth oh god like i can't <sighs> even imagine living in a time like that where like you get knocked up and then you're like ah there's a very high possibility i'm gonna die in nine months and you just like then carry around a baby for nine months <laughs> <laughs> just walking around this is fine bit later in January 1798, her husband Godwin publishes Memoirs of the Author of Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And Godwin thought that he was portraying his, his wife with, you know, love and compassion, but really he had just written like a tell-all book. So <laughs> the readers were like learning about Mary's illegitimate child and her love affairs and her suicide attempts. And none of this was good for her reputation. So fact, he did things that like, if all that had come out about a man, it would have been like, fine, would have been like, look at his life story, but all that came out about a woman and it was like, no. Exactly. Cool. So again, he thought he was helping, but- I think my judgment's in and I don't stand him. That's fair. <laughs> she was really let down by the men in her life. She should have stopped talking to them in general. <laughs> so other novelists at the time were like criticizing her after this wrecked her reputation. But Jane Austen's work actually contained many positive allusions to Mary's work, which is cool. I still need to read Jane Austen's books. You haven't read any Jane Austen book? 
I don't know. They're on You're the like list. Pride and Prejudice? I don't think I have. Jane Eyre? Yeah, I'll get there. Emma? Oh my god. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> Her works inspired many women, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and it helped form the basis of the feminist movement, which was officially started in like the 1890s. That was when the, the phrase feminist was coined. And she also gained a rise in popularity during the UK women's suffrage movement. And from then on, she became like a principal figure of feminist philosophy. She got herself a statue in London in 2020, Ooh. but like most things in 2020, it kind of sucks. <laughs> what do you mean by that? It's like supposed to be symbolic of her, of like Mary's support for women in the feminist movement. But how they decided to represent that symbolism was a picture of a naked woman. I heard about this. Yes. It was on like one of the late night shows. I'm looking at a picture. So just basically blatantly objectifying women. And also she had written a whole thing about how it's unjust that beauty is considered one of the most important attributes of women. Oh my god, the statue sucks. I know, right? That's so unnecessary. <laughs> and it's like not even pretty. Exactly. But on good things of her legacy, she got a minor planet. 90,481 Wollstonecraft is named after her. So that's better than any statue. Yeah. It would be nice though if her one and only statue didn't suck. Oh, yeah, it would. <laughs> like, why is she naked? I don't know. It's unnecessary. Actually, I did look into it. She's The artist said that uh, clothes would date the statue and make it look old and like it was from the past, as if she wasn't a historical figure. Yeah. Put her in clothes that were accurate to her time period? I don't know. And it would date her correctly. <sighs> That's how clothes work. Yep. And time periods and history. Do you want to move on to the quote wall? Sure. Okay. You don't want me to complain about the statue more? I could, I, I could go longer. I mean, we could, we could complain about the statue longer. You gotta put the statue- like, what's with the amalgamous blob below her also. <laughs> We're gonna like, put the statue on the Instagram page, right? Otherwise none of this will make sense. Yeah, I'll put the statue on the Instagram page. But like it's like she's coming out of the void. <laughs> like it's like she's coming out of the goo that stuff comes out of in like sci-fi movies. <laughs> Me waking up on Saturday morning. Like, that shit looks like it belongs in Doctor Who. <laughs> and, like, there's no way that anyone would even, like, there's nothing about that that marks it as, like, a statue about Mary Wollstonecraft. It's, like, just a statue of a naked woman coming out of goo. There's so much that they could have done to honor her, and instead they chose naked woman coming out of goo. Like, why isn't it a statue of, like, a strong woman standing, like, Holding one of her works or something like that in like time appropriate clothing. 
Does the statue even have a head? It does, but it's like not even like a like it's not got no facial expression going on. It's just like a blank stare. Oh yeah. No, this is definitely really Instagram on Wednesday because I have gone on about it for too long. But okay. I, <laughs> I'm just upset by the statue. It's a bad statue. <laughs> Here are some of Mary Wollstonecraft's quotes. Her most famous quote. I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. Preach. Exactly. Another one. No man chooses evil because it is evil. He only mistakes it for happiness, the good he seeks. I feel like some men choose evil because it's evil. <laughs> some men wake up and choose violence. By some men, you mean me? <laughs> yes. Every day, every day, Sam wakes up and chooses violence. Oh my god, I like can't stand today because of how much like I've done, to, like how much fighting I've done in the last week. <laughs> my legs really hurt, <laughs> and my abs kind of hurt. Jitsu will do that to you. I've got a bunch of like fingerprint shaped bruises on my body. Oh great, I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm wearing a shirt. Like, what am I doing today? Oh, she is wearing a tank top. No, I'm not. I'm wearing a bra. Okay, great. <laughs> Just for the record, Sam is not <laughs> recording this topless. I'm wearing a bra. Alright. <laughs> Women ought to have representatives instead of being arbitrarily governed without any direct share allowed them in the deliberations of government. So that's just a longer way of saying no taxation without representation. It's a me and these broth. They want to sponsor us. Oh my god. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> it is justice, not charity, that is wanting in the world, which is still true. Cool. That was not an uplifting story. I'm sorry. Feminist history rarely is. I feel like we've had a lot of uplifting stories, though. Yeah, but they can't all be uplifting, Sam. I know. I'm just upset how, like, not standable this husband was. We'll find more standable husbands. Thank They'll you. be out there. You have a hyperfixation. Yeah. yeah. Let me just pull up my notes. Also, so I did these notes, like, last Monday, so I kind of don't remember what they say, but we'll find out. Oh, great. Cool. So, Ellen. Yes. Do you know how locusts are made? Um, no. Uh, doesn't God create them for a plague? I mean, yeah, but like, <laughs> other than that? Alright, how do they're they're like they're like sex? a real insect that ravages Africa pretty often. Right. So actually, locusts don't reproduce. What? Locusts are grasshoppers that got, like, a lethal dose of serotonin. Oh. Yeah. I want a lethal dose of serotonin. No, what pretty much happens is, like, little harmless grasshoppers turn brown after, like, they get a wave of serotonin, and then they become locusts. And so that's why that happens in, like, swarms, because, like, the whole swarm will get, like, this serotonin effect. And pretty much just turns like, like pretty much Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's like a whole swarm of grasshoppers into locusts that like destroy 
civilization's worth of crops. But where does the serotonin come from? What's making these locusts so happy? <laughs> so pretty much scientists are thinking that it like is the effect that happens when grasshoppers go into swarm mode. So pretty much if like food is low and the grasshoppers are hungry, their bodies will like react by like swarming and like the serotonin wave will hit all of them and then they all turn into like evil loci. Huh. And so they're thinking that like, so right now the way you like control a locust invasion is with pesticides, which are bad for everything. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to find like ways to, to like make natural or make suppressants for the serotonin so that like instead of spraying your plants with pesticides you spray it with like serotonin suppressors so then the locusts won't like change so i'm sorry they're going to give the locusts the opposite of antidepressants and that's how they're planning on stopping them kind of i guess that's better than the pesticides (laughs) (laughs) i guess sure Yeah, so pretty much when, like, land becomes, like, parched or grass is scarce, populations of grasshoppers get pushed into, like, smaller and smaller areas, and when they become more packed, there's a certain point of population density where the swarm-inducing effect happens and the serotonin gets triggered and it just, like, waves through them. But scientists in Australia were able to figure out that, that it was serotonin because they were taking isolated grasshoppers and like giving them serotonin and they would turn into locust but then they would also give like a handful of grasshoppers serotonin suppressants and put them into like a swarm and when the swarm effect took shape the like handful of grasshoppers that didn't have the that like had the serotonin uh suppressors wouldn't turn into loci or locusts i don't know the proper i'm just imagining all of this right now I'm imagining the scientists just pumping serotonin in the grasshoppers and being like, what the heck, what the heck, what is it doing? And then I'm imagining the de-serotoninned grasshoppers in the swarm being like, oh my god, what happened? Oh yeah, that'd be a really terrifying moment. It would be like going to a rave and like falling down. Oh no. Which has happened to me and is terrifying. There's nothing quite like being pretty positive you're getting stopped to death at an EDM concert that your friend dragged you to. Yeah, that's how Klaus dies in the Umbrella Academy. He gets better. Wait, is that in season two? I haven't seen season two yet. That's in season one. He doesn't die in season one. Yeah, he goes to the rave, hits his head, goes to heaven, talks to his dad. Oh, and yeah, then you're right. Time goes backwards. And he proceeds to not do that this time. I you you right. I remember. Yeah. I did. It's been a couple of years. I really need to watch season two. I know it's been out for like two years, and I really can't be upset about spoilers at this point. Also, <laughs> season two was pretty good. I liked it. I just don't watch a lot of TV. <laughs> That's yeah. Me neither. So there are approximately eight thousand species of grasshoppers out there, and actually only ten of them are likely to have the like swarming effect happen well, can we get rid of those 10 you can't really get rid of species yeah we can 
I mean, you can, but like it'll mess up ecosystems. Yeah, but can't we just take one of the non-swarming grasshoppers and throw them in there? Um, that's not really how the world works. Fine. Ugh, I can't believe that ecology is more complicated than that. Ecology is like super complicated, fam. Ugh. Next you're gonna it. say we can't get rid of all the mosquitoes either? No, you, you really can't. That would be like a huge issue. <laughs> there are like programs to sterilize mosquitoes in Africa and it's actually gonna be like an issue. Well, we'll deal with that later. I do like though that their way of trying to get rid of mosquitoes is to sterilize them and then put them back out into the population so they can't reproduce. I mean, that's how they deal with cats. Trap, neuter, release. True. What if I just trap, neutered, and kept because I want a cat? You can do that. I There's know. no law against it. I want a cat. Well, start looking. I know. I don't <laughs> think my roommates want a cat. I'm taking care of my roommate's cat while she's studying abroad. Wait, your roommate's studying abroad? Are you not in- what? Yes, one of my roommates is a law student who's going to study comparative law in the Netherlands. Cool. So, I'm in charge of the cat. You've been there like a week. And that was long enough to judge me worthy of taking care of the cat. That's my story. You know what? I didn't know any of that. That was fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> Locusts are horrifying. Mm -hmm. I found all this now in I'm just thinking about the from grasshoppers from Bug Life. Yeah. Pretty much what happened was last Monday I was eating lunch with my coworker and I was like, find out and like do anything fun this weekend and he was like do you know how locusts <laughs> made pretty much and i was like no and then he told me and i was like whoa and then i looked it up and then i found this scientific america article called when grasshoppers go biblical <laughs> um and i was I like yep it. and this was on monday and we usually record on tuesday so i was like guess this is my hyperfixation for the week cool <laughs> There's also a Kung Fu Panda quote at the end of this article that was, do not go in fear, grasshopper. Great. <sighs> All right. Well, I think, have we learned anything? We learned about locusts. Yeah, that's true. I, I learned, learned about Mary Wollstonecraft and her bad taste in men. Mm -hmm. And her bad decisions regarding going to places where there are revolutions. Yeah, she was a good writer and had some like solid ideas, but like bad tasted men and a little impulsive. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. I mean, I also have bad tasted men, so <laughs> can't blame her. And I'm a little impulsive. Alright, Sam, where can you find us if anyone actually wanted to listen to this? Well, you are clearly listening to us, so you know where to at least like find our voices. But you can also find us elsewhere on the internet, such as Instagram at Chaos Podcast, Twitter at underscore Chaos Podcast. You can send us an email at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com, and we'd really appreciate that because it'd be nice to hear from you. Or you can also send us a five star iTunes review. 
which we would really, really, really appreciate because we got a couple bad reviews this week and it's really hurting my soul. I can't believe we got bad reviews. I will find them and fight them. They didn't even like leave words, they just left like stars and they were bad. Well, then how are we going to improve? If they're right? Just gonna... If you're gonna criticize us, for one, do it in a five star review and for two, leave us words. Yeah. Oh, enjoy the chaos. We hope you enjoyed the chaos. <laughs> I had a line. I'm sorry, fam. Safe travels. Oh.